from Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15, and then we will continue on in Acts 15 through the sermon. Hear now the very word of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This reminds us that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our ears and that you would teach us this day from your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit the necessary calling of your people to send. That as we look at this passage and consider Romans in light of this passage, that this is by your design by your command, by your delight, that you would employ your people to send your people to proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I've listed in the order of worship today, that we'll be going over two different parts of Roman, excuse me, Acts chapter 15 today, um, as we continue to go and, and break apart different pieces, or maybe dissect is a better word, not break apart like we're doing something destructive, but to dissect Acts chapter 15 as we consider the things that it's teaching and highlighting those S's that I told you. We have, um, without looking down, just a quick quiz. We'll have a lot of questions for you today. What are some of the S's that we are highlighting that are in chapter 15 that is a part of the nature of the church in this passage? Save salvation. The very first thing is that this is a message of salvation. So this is God's saving work through the church and how he has employed the church to bring about the message of salvation, saving. Sending, sending yes. We're, today we're going to be talking about sending and how God has employed his people to send people with the message of salvation. Saul and Shepherding. Saul, you said both, very good. I actually changed it to shepherding, but it was with the idea of solving challenges. It's a kind of a, a counseling element to bring about good and help to people by providing shepherds through those who are being those who are bring, bringing the message of salvation, that they also have a work to do of shepherding and helping people apply the message of salvation to apply the gospel to the very challenges of sin and difficulty in their life. What else? Two more. Singing. Another component of the church and the calling of the work is to sing the praises of the Lord, to continually pointing back to praise, that there is not just an element of proclamation of what he has done, but an entering into worship to respond by praising him for what he has done. And lastly, that's not a bad one, but we would be stuck in Acts forever. But One more. 
studying, studying God's word, that this is a word driven, that it is a word centered calling of the church. It's not just a a bunch of ideas about salvation. It's not just whatever you want to do. It is what God has commanded and called, and it is bringing people back to the word. It's reinforcing every message, making every message, and reinforcing every message, being built on the word of God. And so today we're going to be talking about the sending nature of the church, which is perfectly timed that as after our worship today, what we're doing, we're putting together a vote. We are going to be choosing whether or not that we think that Maharus Peters should be an elder in this church. And the very calling that he is going to be given is in the very things that are going on here with the teaching of the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is the first time that we see this being done in a major way where there's multiple different apostles and uh, teachers and elders and other people in the church that are coming together to to define, to debate, to even have some dissension, to, to wrestle through some right doctrine of where our salvation comes from. But it's also this, this gathering of God's people from a multitude of different places on bringing about all of those components. But it is being done through the mechanism and through the instrument of being sent. And so before we go into those particular passages today, excuse me, I wanted to give you the hints to what to be looking for because sometimes it's kind of like when you buy a car and you you, you don't know, man, I haven't seen... I just love this car. It's like one of the most unique cars in the world. And then after you've had it and you've been studying it, you're online looking at it and everything, and then you start driving around, and then everybody has cars like that. When you think about it, you start seeing that it was there all over the place all along. Well, here I want us to, to highlight this instrument of sending and then go back through some of the passages that we've already read and then go ahead and complete chapter 15 in our reading, and that will complete all of, our, of what we've read, and then we'll still have a few more Sundays where we'll go back through and look at some of those other S's. But to be looking at the word primarily of sending, to be looking at also appointment, choosing, um, and I, I almost forgot, gathering, assembled, and how... All of these verbs, look for these verbs as we go through because this is where there is some kind of decision being made to send some people to gather, to deal and do a particular work for the church. And then in the middle of that, you should see the Holy Spirit, just like in other passages that we have had, that as all this stuff is going on, there is this referencing. It's almost like Luke was just, he had a lot to say, but then he was like, just to let you know, this is a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in carrying out the calling of the church, just so that we know that this is empowered, not just by the minds of the individuals, but namely by the Holy Spirit, that God is carrying his church through human beings by the power of the Holy Spirit being rooted in his word. Look for that now as I'm going to read a component, the first seven verses of chapter 15, and then I'm going to skip over and I'm going to read verses 22 through 41. And then other than looking for those particular words, I want to go ahead and give you a preview of the three points of this particular sermon that these people are called to do these three things. 
One, they are to articulate essential doctrine, which goes back to last week's message of salvation, to wrestle that out, to articulate it, to communicate it, to help define it so that we could better understand the scriptures. Secondly, this is the help for the good of the church. The, the, the mindset of what is going on is that they're doing something that would bring good to the church, that would be a help to them, both in understanding doctrine, but also in applying it. And then lastly, to encourage by the declaration of God's work, that there should be a response that should be encouraging to us, that as we are being made clear our sin and our salvation from sin, that the response to that should be a joy and a hope, and that would cause us to want to receive it so that we even get to the point when we're being admonished, if we know that it's from God's word about even our sin, that we would receive that admonishment because we know that through that avenue is that this is the message of salvation and that we have to go through that door of some time of conviction in wrestling through that so that we may land solely in the arms of Jesus Christ. So let's look for that as I now read through different portions of chapter 15, starting with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles And brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days that God made a choice among you, that by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now skipping over to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. I want to stop there just for a second. Some translations, due to the um, more recent um, texts that are found, will not have the whole church. But the older texts have the whole church listed there as being a part of the assembly of making this decision to do the next thing, which is to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So again, I want you to see there that it was a work in collaboration with the leadership. It was the whole church. It was either through representation, but in some way it was the work of the whole church 
to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, who's called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some persons had gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we give them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, and they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in another city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there rose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now you can kind of see why I didn't just introduce our morning with going through that big of a reading, but I think it was important to go through that in bulk. It's always kind of daunting to have that much to be read at one time, but I hope that with the introduction that I gave you, that you can see those components a little bit more highlighted than normal, and maybe you even took a pencil or a pen and went through, and if you underline the word sent, it's a bunch of times, I didn't even count them, but it's a bunch of times. It's a lot. It's a lot of times in this verb of being sent, or who are they being sent by? It's a significant thing. It it almost seems maybe even unnecessarily redundant just for the sake of communicating, unless there is something there to communicate a necessary component, a very significant component, 
that is a work of sending people. And then we see this in the letter of Paul that Paul has to the Romans that when he talks about how there is going to be those who do not believe, how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless there's someone to preach? But it doesn't just stop with just people going to preach. There is the preface or preceding action of sending And that's why it's important for us, especially today, as we consider this calling that we have, this privilege that we have of actually voting from those who are among us to be our leaders. Now, there's two different things that are implicit in the scriptures, just to kind of get there quickly without putting a lot of evidence behind it. And we can debate and argue it later if you would like. But there's two principles that are behind the idea of choosing leaders. And one is just by nature itself. By nature itself, we know that God has instilled in us this desire to establish leaders. Or we have this recognition, if it's not so much a desire, we have this recognition of having a need of having leaders. As you look through the scriptures, you see elders being used in many different ways. And sometimes the elders of the people are not people from God's people. Or the elders are not doing things that God has told them to do. It's just a a, a natural thing that people create structures of leadership. That's just the way we are created. And so to go against that is to go against the created nature if we want to have some kind of anarchy or some kind of everyone is on the same level of their wisdom and ability that there's not this understanding of superior and inferior. I know I've mentioned this before in our preaching that sometimes causes us to to be reactive we don't like the idea of people being superior to us or or someone looking down to us and assuming that we are inferior but it's not based upon value we are all created in the image of god and when we're considering god's people we are all saved by the grace of god and and at that particular place and understanding we know that we are equals But when it comes to function, when it comes to the good of doing some kind of action, even the pagans know that there needs to be those who can lead and guide people along. We'll go all the way back to Moses when Moses was being the instrument of prophecy and leadership to bring Israel out of slavery, that they already had elders amongst themselves. They didn't have to be taught some kind of infrastructure to do that. But we see in that particular narrative with Moses that when Moses was given this great calling to be the one who would lead them into salvation and to proclaim to them the word of God, the law of God, he got way over his head with trying to manage all of those challenges of the people of God. If you recall in the story in Exodus that he was just... People were coming to him with one thing or another. They were inquiring with God through him. He was their mediator, and he was overwhelmed. Do you all recall in that story who gave him some counsel to how to deal with that? His father-in-law. What was his father-in-law's name? Jethro. Now, Jethro was a priest of Midian, and we're not really sure exactly what that meant for sure. Um, But he was like... 
you're, you're doing it all wrong. I mean, he essentially said that. You're burning yourself out. And he just granted over to him basic wisdom that wasn't some kind of rocket science wisdom. He was like, you need to delegate your responsibility. You need to have people call for, people who are recognized among you to bring together leaders to help delegate this responsibility of applying God's word and God's law to this people that God has called for himself and made for himself and saved for himself and for his glory. That this was really not considered to be, he didn't go back and say, well, it said all the way back in Genesis, you know why he couldn't say that? Moses wrote Genesis. Anyway, he couldn't go back and say, you could have done this. It was just kind of common sense to uh, do this kind of thing. But then later on, we see Moses stuck again. We see it in Leviticus, and he's dealing with them, and they're whining and complaining about they wish they could go back to Egypt when things tasted good, and they had seasoning, and they had food, they had meat. (laughs) We want to go back. And he is like, Moses comes to God and says, kill me. (laughs) I can't handle this. (laughs) They're driving me crazy. Just put me down. That's basically what he said. And God said, delegate. Delegate this responsibility. And I will help you. You will not have to carry this burden alone. And so we see this principle taught back. When God's people were given, and it's interesting that it's that particular purpose was to, one, to have the word explained, to have the word applied, and to feed them. And then when we see Jesus in the gospel, when he is teaching his disciples, he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. So you see the principle growing both from just common natural understanding of how we operate, but God actually employing and calling and then giving qualification to what kind of leaders there should be. And you see that particularly as he has kings and he tells what kings should do and how kings should live their lives and how kings should be in the word. I don't want to get into seven different sermons, but you'll see some overlaps with all of these S principles. And so don't I've been trying to be very careful not to get too many rabbit trails, but I wanted you to see that this idea of having leaders called by among the people is one, something that's natural, but also something that is commanded. And here in this particular passage, we see that preceding this, that Paul had already told that the churches should appoint, that they are to appoint, to call, to choose, to vote even, to bring about people who are being recognized to be about this work. This is a significant work of the church. This is a significant responsibility for each one of you. Now, maybe I should have preached this sermon a couple of months ago as we were considering another elder. But even now, as it's right upon us in choosing, you need to understand that this is a part of God's furthering his kingdom to call people from among you. It's a natural thing for us to do for any organization, but it is a particular and special calling. It is your way in participating. And this is just one of the ways we see, particularly here in the Jerusalem Council, that it had for the purposes of helping define major 
issues. And we have seen that throughout the history of the church. And we are still occasionally will bring together groups of people to make clarity to help us through things. I kind of skipped over, but I still want to apply this just as, a, as an analogy to how this is something very natural to us. I'm going through training now with my new job at CGI, and I've kind of learned that there's this, this structure of how to understand where your place is and also where your pay is. And my particular role as a facilities manager is under the category of administrative support. And so I, I kind of like, that's like the lowest level, which I kind of like. It means you have... You have a responsibility, but you don't have major responsibility. <laughs> and so with, with uh, lesser responsibility comes lesser pay, but also lesser headache. But they also have consultants. And those are the people who are actually involved in knowing how to deal with websites and computer stuff. And they're helping clients out. And then you have senior consultants. And then you have directors. And so I was learning about that in the last couple of weeks so I can understand. Because I saw this on taglines and people's emails, and I would see consultant, I would see senior consultant, I would see administrative support. And it helps you understand how things are being done and organized. And once you understand that, you can kind of know, okay, all right. Oh, and you have also you have vice presidents, and then you have presidents. And then you have these two guys who started the business in 1976 that are still with the company, which is Pretty impressive that they're still doing work for the company, and and annually we get to have this big shindig where we watch them on on television as they do this satellite thing. So there's this chain of command, and it helps keep things organized. Well, here we see that they saw it to be good, and that was the other thing that I hope you saw is that this these this phrase seemed good. That as God has employed people to employ people to do about the work, that they are employing ideas for the good of the church. And I wanted to see and point out or highlight for you how this is clarified a bit by going back to the Westminster Confession. Now, interestingly enough, you know that I've referenced the parallel of the confessions, the Westminster, the London Baptist, and the Savoy Declaration of Faith. And you go to 31 of... Chapter, or chapter 31 of the Westminster Confession of Faith when it comes to synod and councils, and you have a good little chunk of ex- explanation. Guess how much is over in the Savoy Declaration? It's not anything. <laughs> you go over to the London Baptist, there's not anything. And I really appreciate the Westminster Confession of articulating both what God has done here, and we can see it in Acts 15, and this is a significant passage for us in understanding why there is the whole concept of Presbyterianism. But you also see the limitations. And I think it's very crucial that we understand what the limitations are. And then we can kind of understand by now looking at that passage and seeing things highlighted like seemed good, you can see that they're making discernments based upon their shepherding care, but they're not necessarily making absolute rules across the board in every element. So I'm going to read for you, and I'm sorry, I apologize. I know whenever there's reading going on, it's easy to get a little groggy-headed. But bear with me, because I've discerned, it seemed good to me (laughs) that today it would be good to do some reading. But it requires you to look at these particular subjects and see how they're highlighted here. So in chapter 31 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, oh, please, oh, I thought I just erased it. Here now, the, the first section, it says, for the, for the better government and further edification of the church, 
There's some similar wording like that into our, in our Constitution. There ought to be such assemblies that are commonly called synods and councils, and it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for the edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies to, to, to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. So what they're recognizing here is, one, God has called Jesus Christ in his kingdom. He has clearly, by his word, appointed the structure of having officers, by having leaders in the church. There are overseers, there are elders in the church, there are deacons in the church, and there's different offices or different um, avenues of of, um, particular work inside of those offices that can be distinguished and broken up, just like... You know, Maharus and I are talking about the differences that we have of under, um, not understanding, but of, of giftings. And so he will have certain duties and I will have certain duties, but we're both called to be elders in the church. And so we will sometimes execute those things in similar, but also in different ways, just like we see at the end of chapter 15. But this is for the better government, the better organization and the edification of the church. That this is not for, I appreciate the fact that they highlighted this, that this is for the edification and not for destruction. That this is, this is for your good. This is a good thing to have organized religion in the church. Now, have, you, have any of you all ever heard people say that, you know, I, I'm, I love Jesus, but I'm against organized religion. Have anybody ever have heard anybody say that? And it's like, why would you, if, if you look at what God has done in his word, it's like, why would you want there to be disorganized religion? I mean, we all are familiar with disorganization in family. I know we're just if, if anyone's been around a family, if you have disorganization, it's chaos. No, we want it to be good. It's for the edification of the church and that it is to appoint assemblies to convene together as they should judge as often, basically as, as, as necessary. So what it's saying here is that it's not an absolute continual thing that needs to be constant, need to be constantly doing things just to be doing things. Now that's one of the things I have learned in this new training in the corporate world that there is kind of this anticipation that you need to be doing stuff, no matter if there's stuff to do, or you you got to be looking like you're doing something because the structure is kind of made that way. But in this particular situation, you don't make yourself valuable just for the sake of making yourself valuable. It is for the purpose of the good of the church, to help the church as it's necessary. There's sometimes there are seasons of peace in the church. There are sometimes there's disruptions very similar that we have in Acts 15 that require clarity. If you look at our Constitution, in our Book of Memorials, we have some things that since they're not articulated in the Constitution, but we want to make a declaration for some for legal purposes, but also for helping and teaching and understanding, there are some declarations in there about a couple of different subjects or a few different subjects. But you will see that all of them were adopted mostly from other assemblies, some from the CREC, some from the PCA, some from just a particular church in the PCA, and then one was actually a convening from a, a bunch of people in the ecclesiastical church in response to a really bad statement. The very first thing we have is, is a response to what was called the Phoenix Statement that was by, I think, particularly Roman Catholics about embracing and opening up 
the doors of the church to say it's okay to be gay. And so there was this response to the Phoenix Declaration that different evangelicals came together and wrote and signed, and then the CREC adopted it, and then I presented it before us before we went into the Constitution, and we've adopted it as one of our memorials and where we stand on the issue, which also helps protect us and clarify in the event that someone says that, you know, that I've preached something or said something against homosexuality, that I can say this is a part of our conviction of who we are as a church. It's clearly written out and already determined to be our position. That's stuff that we still practice today. And of course, if you go to the front of our Constitution, we're referencing all these confessions and these different declarations. We're going through the canons of Dort, which is helping us articulate what we believe the Bible to say. This is something that we have been practicing both in adoption and when we get together, just, just in a very informal way. Marus and I were there when they were um, interviewing him with Damon and with Eric in the question of can a single person, single man, <laughs> can a single man be an elder? And we talked about it, and we went through the scriptures in a very brief moment, and we reassured each other in our positions, and we were together in our understanding, and it reinforced and strengthened our position. I did not know where the other two guys stood or where Maroos stood in that, and we kind of just quickly went through that, and it strengthened our resolve in the matter so that if God would open that door and opportunity again for us in this congregation, I think we were strengthened by even that short little conversation of being brought together and Maurice not even being an ordained man yet was already able to participate in the value and the benefit of what God has given to his church. I want to continue on with some of the Westminster Confession, if you would bear with me here. Section 3. Section 2 has been marked out for some reason. I can't remember why, but as you read it, you might you can see why it's a little antiquated. Section 3 of chapter 31, it says, It belongeth to the synods and councils ministerially to, de- to determine controversies of the faith in cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and the government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same which decrees and determinations, if the consonant of the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power by wherever they are made, as being in ordinance appointed thereunto in his word. I'm going to just keep on going. It's a, it's a little mouthful there. Next, section four, it says, All synods and councils since the apostles' times, with general or particular, may err. And many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. And so again, it's articulating a recognition that when these people come together, these officers and overseers of the church come together to wrestle through these issues, that they have one particular job, to proclaim the word of God and to bring help to the church through when there are challenges. And that's it. That's not there. They don't, they're not there to make up things for themselves. They're not there to make additional words of God. We talked about synergism Last week, and here is a reaction to the mindset of the Roman Catholic Church to see the Word of God 
and the declarations of leaders to be identical. They see those things to have the same bearing weight. And what the reformers have done, and and this was in unity with the others, even though there's silence in those other confessions, is that it is the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. It is the Word of God that is the authority. And that we are only discerning what seems good based upon what the Word has said to how to apply it in circumstances. This is why also last year, and I've talked to different pastors and other Christians that Last year, the, the social world, the secular world, the social justice world, put, or the last couple of years, they put certain things as this is the priority of what is the biggest ills in our world today. Well, pastors had to make a discernment based upon where they're at in the word of God and their calling to shepherd their sheep. Are we going to make this the number one priority, this issue or that issue? Who is going to be the authority? Sometimes we're not confused that it's not the pastors that have equal authority with the Word of God, but sometimes we're confused whether the state or the culture has greater bearing in teaching us what to do. You as a congregation, as you are called to send and to call people, you must understand, you must discern through the Word of God. It's not the charisma of the leadership. It's not the connection to the culture that you need to be making this decision. Are these men qualified according to the word of God and gifted by God to be leaders from among us? We're not just picking picking people who have leadership qualities like the world does. We are picking people according to the command of the word of God. If you got our email last night, apologize for the lateness of it, but you've, got, you've been told this before, that we have qualifications for elders from the Bible. And they're not complicated, but they're weighty. And they're the calling really for all of us to some degree to, and when it comes to character and morality. All of us should aspire for that, those components of those qualifications. But these are the things that we're looking for. We're not looking for anything beyond that in its richness. That if you know, it's like, well, he looks nice, or he's really a, just a dynamically powerful, convincing person. It's not what it says in the scripture. Does they are they capable of teaching? Can they convey and teach people? But we must understand that even Paul himself wanted to make it very clear that it was important for him to explain that he's not trying to be fancy. Moving on. So as we look at these three things, and I'm going to wrap up here, that just as a reminder, that when you are calling people to represent us through being elders and deacons in the church, that we can see in the scripture that the primary disruption was false doctrine, a false understanding of God a false understanding of our salvation. It is essential that we are rooted in God's word. And we'll preach more about that later on throughout the rest of the month and next month. But it is essential that that is the number one thing. Are they preaching, teaching, practicing, shepherding 
Jesus Christ according to his word and according to his command. And that when we understand that their calling is for the good of the church, we can see here in this particular passage that we're not calling people to be these totalitarian leaders that are equal bearing of the word of God, but they are to use the wisdom that God has granted them in the gifts that they have in leadership and the experience of having tested their leadership to applying God's word for the good of the church. We should recognize that these things are good for us. The culture, I mean, think about it again. I've used this as a test that if you want to know what Satan loves and and what God hates, you can look at the culture and you can see that in the culture that we are being taught that leadership is bad. That authority is bad. Now, we know that there are times where there is abuse, but as I've said time and time again, that's because they're not following the principles of faithful leadership. It's not because they are leaders. It's because they are failed leaders. But God has given us this structure for our good. And he did this here. He brought together people from the church that the church acknowledged to be those who should lead them according to God's calling to help wrestle this issue for the help of the Christian Gentiles for their good. We also have this passage here. Scrolling all over the place. It says in Hebrews 13, I'm going to first read verse 17 and 7 and then go to 17. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we see here that these leaders that we are to submit and to use for our help and our edification, they need to be those who are proclaiming God's word and practicing God's word in their life. But look at verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So one thing is, don't receive leadership or counsel or admonishment or direction as something to be pushed away. Or or when I say don't receive, we don't, don't respond to that reality or those moments where you may be corrected or maybe even someone just simply wanting to talk to you to have some time of shepherding. Don't push that away. That This should be something that you understand. Do you not care for your soul? Do you not realize that God has organized this, that God has established this for your good? Just as the reformers of Westminster Divines, they said, this is not for your destruction. This is for your edification. But obviously, Paul saw here in the book of Hebrews that we are going to have this mindset and that it's going to be in a way that it's going to cause these leaders to, to, to have to wrangle, like you see with Moses wrangling with Israel, that's going to be not with joy. There's going to be groaning because there's this conflict. And their conflict is ultimately sin. But the remedy, the shepherding that the Lord has given, has been you picking people to help you and to help others. 
We see in chapter 14 that they chose among themselves elders to, bring, to pull together a collection for Antioch. Not for Antioch, for Jerusalem. And then they sent those whom they chose to go and to encourage and to deliver that support. To bring help to the church is to bring good to the church. And so do not let Satan discourage you. But be open, be convicted, trust God that this infrastructure that he has created is to encourage you to bring you the message of salvation. And also keep us in check if Marus and I are not bringing forth a message, assuming he is elected, <laughs> that he is not bringing forth a message of the gospel. If I'm not bringing forth the message of the gospel that is a saving work of God, if it is not bringing good to the church, then we need to be admonished. And we need to convene that this is the only purpose that we have is to declare and practice the work of God. Then we see there in this particular passage that they recognize that as they were assembled together, they were recognized that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit that we would do this. They were seeing the Holy Spirit being at work according to the promises and the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, when we think about the cross, when we think about the resurrection, that is being manifested and is being brought out by the calling of officers, by the calling of ordained men, by the calling of missionaries, by the calling of councils to come together to wrestle through these things, to the calling of evangelists, that these are people who have been approved and understood to be in the Word, living according to the Word, and called by the people to proclaim the gospel of salvation for the good of the church. This is a wondrous work that we are able to participate in. You are participating in, in your ministry, by the calling in the work of Jesus Christ. If you were not a Christian, if you had not been saved by grace... If there would not be resurrection, none of this would be necessary. We would just be another secular organization trying to help ourselves in whatever way we could. But this is actually a work of our King, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.